Good afternoon, everyone. There is someone there. That is good. Um, we read from Colossians because that passage is particularly relevant, but don't be confused. We're still continuing our studies in uh, the letter 1 John towards the end of the New Testament. You can find uh, the passage we're going to look at on page 1227, uh, 1 John chapter 4. Uh, we're in our studies, we're, we're going through the book of 1 John, and uh, we've reached chapter 4 of 5, so we're well over halfway through. Um, and uh, today we're going to look at verses 1 to 6, and then next Sunday we're going to look at verses 7 uh, to the end. Um, I, I should say that I feel slightly bad. I've planned the series. And at the beginning, I kicked it off, and the passage I spoke from was four verses. And then Rob preached on a chapter and a half. And then I think Luke preached on another chapter and a bit. And today, I'm going to preach on six verses. I, I want to say to those guys, I didn't do that deliberately. Luke reminded me that when we did Galatians before Christmas, it was the other way around. So I'm not just trying to make their lives difficult. Um, but we're just going to look at these six verses today. There's a reason why chapter four splits nicely into those two sections and I want to show you what that reason is by dipping back into the end of chapter 3 first of all. Uh, Luke had a long section to unpack last week which was a little challenging for him and, and, and for us I think there was a lot to take in last week. But I want to take you to some verses at the end of chapter 3 that we didn't really have a whole lot of time to look at last time. Let's see if this works. Tipping back into chapter 3 there. I think we could take verse 23 of chapter 3. There it is. As a key verse in this whole letter. And we're just going to pause and stay here for a little while. Verse 23 of chapter 3, John says... This is God's command, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. I, I think there's great simplicity here. If you want to know what God requires of you, God gives you one command in two parts to believe in Jesus and to love other people. In fact, in this whole letter, I want to suggest to you that John is arguing a huge connection between these two things. His basic approach is that these two things go together so closely, so intimately, that you can't ultimately have one without having the other. What you believe about Jesus will ultimately affect how you live. And actually, how you live will affect how you view Jesus. But this raises all sorts of questions, I think. I, I hope you're awake to this and alert to this. Because I think we've got a good example here of what I want to call an exclusive command that leads to an inclusive love. Uh, someone might say, I can love people without believing in Jesus. What are you talking about? But I, I think what is part 
being, being expressed there is, is really this. How can you say that Jesus is the only way? Isn't that exclusive and arrogant and narrow? I, I think this idea can be, in our modern society, why people can be suspicious of and reluctant about church, amongst other things. Um, recently, I was with a group of ministers uh, hearing uh, a Scottish minister talk about his assessment of the culture in the UK. This guy was a Scot, um, Scottish minister. And he described in the course of an afternoon seven or eight trends that are common across our society. And one of them that he talked about was that people in our society, you, you may, this might resonate for you, people in our society are nervous about what he called religious fundamentalism, religious extremism. Um, he gave an example, his church is in Dundee, and they, they have a lot of students in their church, and a student came to university and started attending this minister's church in Dundee, who had never really been to church in her life before. And she enjoyed coming to the church in Dundee, and when she phoned home, or emailed home, she mentioned to her parents that she'd been going to a church, and the following weekend, her parents showed up at this minister's church and he got talking to them at the door and they admitted to him that they were atheists and uh, so and he, he asked them why have you come and he said well we, we've come because we're worried about our daughter she told us that she was going to church and we thought we ought to come and check out where she was going and what she was doing. It's interesting, isn't it, that in our modern society, that these parents didn't really care what else she was doing, assuming she was safe. She could be into anything at all at university, as long as she was safe. But the fact that she'd gone to a church caused the parents to jump in the car and drive up to Scotland to check out what she was being exposed to. I think you can read this in the news every day. Religious extremism is now seen widely as one of the greatest threats to stability and peace in our society. Many people wish that religion would simply go away, but it doesn't seem to want to go away. Others suggest that if it won't go away, people should keep it at home and do, do religion in private and not bring it into the public sphere. Religion is something to fear because it's felt that it only divides people. It makes them fight. Because what it boils down to is people saying, my God is bigger than your God. And people don't want that kind of divisive language. Now, don't, don't misunderstand me here, because I'm not arguing that we should all be religious. Uh, 
I, I, I have a lot of sympathy with the idea that religion divides people. If religion is about me or you joining some kind of club that enables me to feel superior to other people, then of course it will end up being destructive. It won't make me love people who are different to me. It, it, it would lead me to look down on other people, maybe even in my heart, to despise them. My, my point here isn't that we should all become religious. My point is that we should sit up and prick up our ears here because John is arguing in the exact opposite direction. He is suggesting here that the exclusive claims of, Christ, of the Christian gospel in fact doesn't lead to arrogance or superiority but it actually leads towards radical love and tolerance and generosity. John's approach here though makes it sound even worse I think to our modern ears because he talks about the Christian gospel being something to obey. I, I think often we think of the Christian gospel, here's some information and the call is to believe in that information. Here John talks about the gospel being something to obey. This is the command of God. It is a transcendent and universal command. This is not a quiet, apologetic suggestion. And, and what John says here clashes, I think, with our culture that says, whatever you do, keep your faith indoors, private, don't bring it out. Other biblical writers do this too. Um, I, I was reminded of Paul, another man, another character in the New Testament, who on one occasion was in the city of Athens, he was invited to speak to the greatest philosophers of his generation in Athens. All the best and cleverest minds gathered together in the debating chamber and said, give us what you've got, Paul, come on in. We're interested in your ideas. We're pretty open-minded. Give us what you've got. And it's interesting because in that first century culture, they had many gods, hundreds of gods. You could basically pick your own god and worship whichever one you chose to worship. Every single person had their own private beliefs. People were tolerant and accepting of everyone else's individual beliefs and it all sounds very plausible it all sounds very much like what our own society would aspire to but Paul goes into that debating chamber and he doesn't talk about how his God is the same as all the other gods he goes right into all these clever minds clever philosophers and has the audacity to talk about how different the living God was to all the other gods. Let me read to you from Acts chapter 17. This is what, imagine the tension in the room. This is what Paul says to all these clever people. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, 
We shouldn't think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now, God commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Paul sounds like he's saying, my God's bigger than your God. He claims that his God has a universal claim on all people everywhere and is commanding them to repent of their worship of other gods. And he centers it all again, like John does, on the person, the unique person of Jesus Christ. You might think that that kind of preaching would lead to people being arrogant, superior, in the worst possible way. I think the interesting thing we can do, though, is to compare what Paul's exclusive message led to and what Roman culture, with its more inclusive-sounding message, was like. Roman culture in the first century was theoretically tolerant, and yet it was basically brutal. The rich didn't relate to the poor. There were issues with men mistreating women. Children's lives were cheap. From a religious perspective, Jews didn't talk to non-Jews and vice versa. So in the first century, there's a massive claim of tolerance and acceptance. And yet first century Roman culture was fractured in so many brutal ways. Yet Paul's message spread around the Mediterranean in the first century like wildfire. And despite sometimes vicious persecution, it gradually gained traction and in the end overcame the brutal Roman Empire. Somehow Paul's exclusive message that sounds intolerant didn't lead to arrogance or superiority but instead created the most inclusive, loving communities. Christians were known even for loving their enemies. They served one another sacrificially. Women were honored. Children were protected. The poor were cared for inside and outside their community. So we need to think more carefully has a set of beliefs. The question is, what sort of beliefs actually liberate people to love others sacrificially? Verse 23 is very important. John says, this is God's command, to believe in his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another, an exclusive claim that ironically leads to inclusive love. There's a second thing I want you to see at the end of chapter 3 before we jump into chapter 4. And it's this. John, John then says, if you look with me, 
verse 24, John then says, the one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. John speaks about mutual indwelling relationship of the closest possible kind. And then John anticipates a question, how can I know? How can I know that I have this? This is the whole burden of this letter. This is why we've called the series that you may know. And he, he answers that question in verse 24 by referring to the work of the Spirit of God. This is the first time in the book that John mentions the Spirit. And notice the generosity of God here. This is how we know that God lives in us. We know it by the Spirit he gave us. This could mean that the Spirit of God is at work within our hearts, inwardly, gently speaking to us to reassure us that we are indeed God's children. This is true, and it's a biblical idea. Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 8. And if you remember when we were in Galatians before Christmas, in Galatians chapter 4 verse 6, Paul says, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba Father. But while the work of the spirit does have this kind of subjective reassuring effect in the hearts of believers, I think John means something more here. I think what John's alluding to is this. Belief in Jesus and loving one another are required of us by God. But at the same time, these two things are actually the gift of God. God himself produces these things in the hearts of his people by his spirit. So I think John's point here is that we can know that we live in God and that God lives in us if the Spirit has been at work in our hearts to produce faith in Jesus and love for one another. That's an objective test rather than a subjective inward one in a sense. And I, this is the reason why chapter 4 splits so easily into two sections because John goes on to deal with the theme of faith in verses 1 to 6 and then he deals with love in verses 7 to the end. The flaw of John's thought here is that in, in verse 23 of chapter 3 he identifies the command of God, believe in Jesus and love one another. Chapter 4 then goes on to describe how both of those things are produced in our hearts by the transforming power of God's Spirit. John's basic point then is that God is generous and that the great and powerful work of the Spirit of God is to give birth in your heart to these two things. Faith towards Jesus, love towards other people. 
The context here is important. You know this now. Remember that people have left this church. The people that have left are claiming that they've moved on to better things. The believers who are left behind are nervous and worried. Other people are criticizing them and saying that they're mixed up and they've somehow got things wrong. These other people who've left are claiming that God has spoken to them and inspired them. New revelations. These, these guys are claiming to know the real truth. And somehow the believers left behind are wondering whether they have it anymore. These people are saying God's on our side and that we're backwards somehow. And so John writes to these discouraged, demoralized believers to pick them up off the floor with these two simple ideas. And he writes with great affection. In chapter 4, verse 1, he calls them dear friends. In verse 4, he calls them dear children. Verse 7, dear friends again. He's writing to these dear broken believers how do you know that you are in God and that God is in you the answer is that when the spirit of God is at work in your lives he'll point you to Jesus and he will enable you to love one another that's how you know So we'll talk about the love part next time from verse 7. But in the rest of our time today, I want us briefly to look at chapter 4 and the first six verses and see what John says about the work of the Spirit giving birth to faith in our hearts. I've spent time on this because... I want you to see that there's something about faith in Jesus that leads to love and humility rather than arrogance and superiority. That's the connection I'm trying to make. So let's read chapter 4 and we'll just read the first six verses. And I'm sorry to the guys who had to preach on 50 verses. This is on page 1227. John writes, dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. 
We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. And whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. I've entitled this first um, section here, Don't Be Gullible. Another trend in our society, I think, is that that there are many people, I think, who, who would say, if someone has faith, they're basically gullible. This is a trend in our society that says, I will only believe what I can see. <coughs> I'm only going to believe in something if you can scientifically demonstrate to me that it's proven. Faith is the equivalent of blind confidence in some kind of fairy tales. And if you can't prove something to me, you're gullible and I'm not going there. We were doing a crossword at home yesterday, general knowledge crossword, and one of the answers was uh, Anita Roddick. You know who Anita Roddick is? She, she founded the body shop, uh, chain of shops. She's died now. Before she died, obviously she wouldn't say after she died, Anita Roddick said, I quote, I have fallen for the prevalent idea that says anybody who has a religious inclination has no sense of rationale or intellectual understanding and therefore should be dismissed. I don't think she was talking about employees there you work at the body shop they, they should be not you know fired they should just be disregarded that's pretty stark isn't it this is recent I think she said that in 2010 if you believe you must be stupid no sense of rationale or intellectual understanding we could go into that but there it is we haven't got time. The irony here is that John says the exact opposite here. He actually says, don't be gullible. Don't believe everything you hear. Use your brain. Think. Stop. Use your heads. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit. Don't be gullible. Some people are gullible. I don't think Christians or people who are not Christians have a monopoly on being gullible. But what John says here is, don't believe everything that you hear. Why? Because there are actually all kinds of ideas and philosophies and arguments out there in the world that will sound plausible and that people do take, despite protesting otherwise, on faith. But in the end, they will lead you astray. John says here, test the spirits because many false prophets have gone out into the world. John is saying behind every prophet or voice, if you like, that speaks, there's a spirit, an agenda, a motive, 
It's interesting that the word spirit has the idea of wind or breath behind it. Behind every voice is a wind of something that is seeking to blow you in a particular direction. Nothing in the end is truly neutral. There are spirits, multiple, many spirits, John says. I wish we had more time to explore some of these winds that blow. But I want to highlight the fact that we humans are this, often this messy mixture of superstition and suspicion. Sometimes we seem capable of believing everything. Sometimes it seems like we don't believe in anything. And against these multiple spirits, these winds that blow, John contrasts the work of the Spirit of God and he says two things at the beginning and end of this section that I think are very potent and powerful. First of all, in verse 2, John says that the Spirit opens mouths to confess Jesus sincerely. Verse 2, this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that doesn't acknowledge Jesus is not from God. You see the contrast he's making. I say sincerely, deliberately as well, because obviously this acknowledgement of Christ or confession isn't just some kind of intellectual assent. The Bible says that the devil knows Jesus came in the flesh. I don't think the devil acknowledges that in the way John's talking about here. I could pay you to say Jesus is Lord. It would mean nothing. It's also possible that someone might want to acknowledge Jesus as Lord to fit in with a particular group. And actually, it doesn't mean anything in their heart necessarily. Jesus himself warned, Jesus said these words in Matthew's Gospel, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And they, these words are like terrible. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So John can't just be talking about someone who just says, yeah, Jesus is Lord. The word acknowledge here is really the word confess. And it conveys sincerity, reverence. It, it conveys something genuine. This is a word that involves love and devotion. What John is saying is that the work of God's spirit is to open the eyes of people's hearts so that they would see and appreciate and understand and embrace the true beauty and worth of Jesus Christ. Sometimes at night, 
you drive around and there are buildings, well, Thomas Rotherham College on Moorgate is a good example of this, beautiful old building, and if you drive past at night, someone has put lights in the grounds, pointing upwards onto the walls. Beautiful old building. The lights don't shine on each other. The lights light up the walls because the point is, that's what the people who put the lights, they want you to look at. This is the work of God's Spirit. God gives us his Spirit and the Spirit shines a light on Jesus to light up that view so that our eyes would see his true beauty and glory and majesty. No one can truly embrace Christ as he really is apart from this spiritual work going on in their heart. We do not see Jesus more clearly by our own cleverness or ability. We do not have some superior wisdom that's greater than other people's wisdom. We don't have more finely tuned spiritual antennas and some people just don't have them. Our perception of Jesus is enabled by the generous gift of the Spirit of God who has been at work in our hearts to reveal his beauty to us. John says the same thing slightly differently at the end of this section in verse 6 when he talks about the Spirit opening hearts to receive Jesus gladly. Verse 6, John as an apostle, as a disciple of Jesus, an eyewitness, he, he says it sounds arrogant, doesn't it? We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. What John's saying is that as John proclaims Christ, those who don't understand it or listen to it are basically only hearing the multiple spirits that are at work in the world. Those who see Christ are the ones who are from God. His spirit's been at work in them. And this too isn't, this listening isn't just sitting there like a mannequin or some kind of shop dummy, just, just listening. The same thing applies here. This is more than mere listening. This is the Spirit of God producing in the heart a heartfelt desire, a hunger, a reception of the Word of Christ. Those who have the Spirit listen and respond to Jesus. Look with me at verse 4 in the middle of this section. You, dear children, are from God, and you have overcome them. Why and how? Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. 
You see the point that John is making. All the different winds that have been blowing. Why have they not blown these believers over? John says that they've been able to stand up and stay strong because the one who is in them is greater than the one who's in the world. They haven't stood strong by their own strength or skill. It's the Spirit of God at work in them. John's point here is that the Spirit of God is given to lead you to Jesus. To open your heart to embrace him gladly and to open your mouth to confess him sincerely. Imagine the encouragement that this letter would have been to believers who are feeling like maybe we've got it wrong. Maybe these clever ones who've left are kind of John writes to encourage them. In the light of what we've been saying, our question then is, what is it about this Jesus that John has experienced that is so compelling? And how is it that embracing him in the power of God's spirit how is it that that releases confidence and humility and love and life rather than superiority and arrogance? John alludes to it all here with one simple phrase in verse 2. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Let's draw things together just very quickly with this. This is the Jesus who has come in the flesh. Straight away, there's something concrete here. This Jesus is not an idea or some kind of vague force. He's not another ology or ism. He's not a ghost or a phantom. The Christian gospel is not an idea. It centers on a person. And John says that he has come. Let's, um, I'm, I'm completely forgetting to move this on. I'm getting carried away. He has come. In other words, his birth was not his beginning. That, that word come is, is an interesting one. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That implies that he was somewhere else before he came. John doesn't say he was born. He, he, he has come into the world in the flesh. So this is talking about Jesus' pre-existence. This is the eternal son. Secondly, I, I want to suggest that Jesus isn't just dropping in for a bit. This also implies permanence. The man Jesus who came in the flesh did not just temporarily wear a human suit 
as a kind of disguise for a bit. This is permanent and it communicates something of its utter faithfulness. In the person of Jesus, the eternal nature of God has been united to our human flesh forever. I, I want to say to you this afternoon that, I, I, I don't know if you think about this, in heaven, right now, there's a human being, a man in heaven. That's why we human beings have solid hope. Because the nature of God has been united to our flesh permanently. I want to say thirdly that it's purposeful. I, I think we could skip over this. The fact that Christ has come in the flesh means that this world that we live in matters. We, we could spend longer on this, but I, I think often human philosophies, even human religious ideas, basically consist of encouraging us to be one of the elite ones that have the ability to escape the messiness and nastiness of this world. I think both religious and secular philosophies basically are encouraged to say, I'm better than them. That's the whole idea behind human philosophies. I'm not like other people. I'm better than that. I'm escaping. But Jesus Christ coming in the flesh doesn't imply elitism or escapism. Jesus rolls up his sleeves and gets involved. He isn't trying to escape a broken world. He is coming to redeem a broken world. And ultimately, the reason that Jesus comes into this broken world in the flesh is because we need a savior and he is passionate in his pursuit of people who don't love him. Later on in the Bible, actually it's not later on, it's just before John, the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says this, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death that is the devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death for this reason he had to be made like them fully human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. This is what makes the Christian gospel utterly unique and different to any other philosophy. Jesus Christ came in the flesh 
and died for people who don't love him. And that's why it releases love rather than arrogance. As Sarah read earlier in Colossians chapter 2, all the fullness of the eternal deity dwelt in Christ in bodily form and he really died in that flesh on a Roman cross. It changes our definition of what constitutes greatness. The gospel does not tell us that we are better than other people. The gospel tells us that we are loved in spite of ourselves and it therefore liberates humility. This is the exclusive Christ who liberates people to be inclusive and to serve one another freely instead of feeling superior. Let me just close with three quick applications. If, I, I want to say to those of you who are believers today, if you're a Christian, I want to say two things. Number one, don't be proud of your own ability. Praise God that he opened the eyes of your heart to see and embrace Christ. Give God the glory. And secondly, encouragingly, be glad that the one who is at work in you is greater than the one who is at work in the world. The Spirit of God is at work in your heart to keep you from being deceived or held captive by hollow and empty philosophies and to keep your eyes on Christ. Whatever this world might say or do to you. And lastly, if you're not a believer in the, in the Lord Jesus, I, I, I think it, the, the application, I think, is obvious here. Humble yourself and pray that God would give you his spirit. This is God's command, that you believe in the name of Jesus Christ and that you love one another. May you know the power of his spirit producing those two things in your heart. Amen.